الحمد لله وكفى والسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى اما بعد اعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا ايها الذين امنوا اتقوا الله وكونوا مع الصادقين سبحان ربك رب العزه اما يصفون والسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم الله سبحانه وتعالى بلست اس امه ورحمه للعالمين خاتم النبيين سيدنا رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم just like allah taala gave this ummah the greatest prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam allah taala gave this ummah the greatest companions of the prophet sahaba ikram radhiyallahu taala anhum ajma'in and allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given this ummah the greatest siddiqeen and greatest salihin in the history of any ummah the greatest of the siddiqeen sayyidina abu bakr as-siddiq imam as-siddiqeen radhiyallahu taala anhu and the siddiqeen will continue to exist until the last day until the end of time so who are the siddiqeen they are those true followers true believers and true followers of sayyidina rasulullah sallam true lovers of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how did they come to that level is a very interesting story for us particular in the case of Imam Abu Hamid al-Ghazali rahimahullah ta'ala there is a hadith hasan hadith that sayyidna rasulullah sallallahu said that at the turn of every hijri islamic century allah subhanahu will bring forth from the ummah somebody who will do something called tajdeed who will revive the deen and that person is known as a mujaddid this is something that all the ulama have accepted that there is a mujaddid some have perhaps argued there could be more than one mujaddid in one century some have said there will be one in each century but for different fields allahu akbar and then different ulama have written who they feel historically before them was the mujaddid of their time perhaps one of the most agreed upon candidates for who was the mujaddid of the 11th islamic century is imam ghazali rahimahullah ta'ala what does it mean it means to revive the deen in some way which was critically needed at that time in order to keep the baqa or the sustenance of that deen Now for many people who study ghazali in the western university or academy they focus on his refutation of the philosophers but actually from our own muslim intellectual tradition from our own understanding of our own history that is actually not imam ghazali's major work his major work was his ihya ulumuddin in which he revived the different disciplines of islamic learning and you can say this tahafut al falasafa is just the icing on the cake or is just the cherry on the top In Imam Ghazali Rahmatullahi very broadly speaking because I want to go as quickly as I can to the text but I wanted to give you some brief information about him and his life and the time he was living in the two greatest things 
two or three of the greatest aspects of his legacy, which is his deed, is number one, is the revival of the spiritual aspect of Deen. Bringing people to the feelings of Deen, and particularly bringing the ulama and talaba, the teachers and students of formal Islamic learning, who knew the meanings of Deen, to bring them to the feelings of Deen. To bring them to the feelings of Deen. Second major contribution was his articulation of tasawwuf, of tazkiyah, of Islamic spirituality. And third major contribution, indeed, was his refutation of the false philosophical ideologies that were taking place in his time. So to give you an idea of his life, Imam Ghazali was born in uh, 1058 or 1059, uh, what you would call Common Era, or AD, and he passed away in 1111 AD. And I'm specifically going to just give you some dates and ages that are relevant to our text. This text, Al-Munkid Min Al-Dalal, Munkid, you can say the rescuer from error or from being astray. Some people translate it deliverance, but Munkid means the rescuer, the deliverer, that which delivered him and rescued him and brought him into salvation from Dalal, from being astray or from being in manifest error. So this text, some people say it's the autobiography of Imam Ghazali. It's not really an autobiography because he doesn't mention every single thing about his life. There are many, many things that are missing in this text. Actually, you could really call it a spiritual autobiography. He wants to share with people a certain part of his life, which was his journey from what we titled today in English, from skeptical doubt to certain conviction. And that's a very honest and generous thing of him to do, to actually write down, pen down on paper, the doubts and skepticisms and questions that he had, and how he managed to reach a level of certainty and yakin in his conviction. So that is really the purpose of this text. He was born in a place called Tus, which is now in modern-day Iran, which means he was ethnically Persian. But in Persian or Persian civilization society, the language spoken at that time was Arabic, lingua franca. main language was Arabic. So he was, you can say, a native Arabic speaker without being natively Arab. That is possible in this time of Islamic civilization. So ethnically Persian, but a native Arabic speaker. Then he lived and was born, raised, and grew up in Tus, and he, left, he stayed there until 1077, until the age of 19. During that period, he also was studying Ulum al-Islamiyah, the different branches of Islamic learning. Then he was, for the next 14 years, he lived at Nishapur, which is yet another city, which is in modern-day Iran. And from 1077 to 1085, he taught at the Nizamiya College. And I'll come back and explain what this is. And then from 1085 up to 1091... He also served as an advisor to the very famous Seljuk wazir Nizamul Mulk. And then in 1091, at age of uh, 33, he moved to Baghdad, and then he was appointed as the Sadr Mudarris, as the principal professor, dean of academics, at the main Nizamiya college or academy, which is in Baghdad, 
which is now even a more center and cradle of Islamic civilization at that time. And in the year 1095, so now at the age of 37, he experienced what you would call a quote-unquote crisis of faith. And that is going to be now what we're going to look at in the text. And eventually that crisis of faith caused him to stop teaching. Then he stopped teaching, then he traveled and he went to Dimashq and then Beit al-Muqaddas and Makkah Mukarramah, Medina Manawara and Al-Khalil, uh, Hebrew, what they call it in Hebron. And that traveling took place anywhere, took about six months to one year. What, rather, one year to one and a half years. And then around 1097, he returned in Bag- back to Baghdad, where he spent the next nine years, up to 1106, in Halwa, in Ibadah, in solitary devotion to worship, and he also wrote his masterpiece, Ihya Ulumuddin. And then after that nine-year hiatus, then in 1106, now Imam Ghazanita was 48 years old, then he was called back to Nishapur to teach. And after this 11-year gap in teaching, he resumed teaching in the Nizamiya Madrasa in Nishapur from 1106 until when he died in 1111 at the what today we would say the relatively young age of 53. Right? This is a brief understanding, an overview of his life. Just to put you in a bit of a context, because he is going to talk about this issue of philosophy. So, before Imam Ghazali there was a philosopher known as Al-Razi. There's going to be two Razis. The first one is Muhammad ibn Zakariya, Al-Razi, who lived from 865 to 925. I'm giving you all the Western dates. When I said 11th century also, that was the Western 11th century being the Majadid. That would not be correct, actually. We would rather have to say the 7th century, because the Majadid is from the Islamic century. Khair, this philosopher, Al-Razi, ended up becoming an atheist. He was so engaged in Platonic, Plotinus, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, let's just say early Greek philosophy. And so impressed by that, and so overwhelmed by that, that he actually renounced his Himan, and he became an atheist. The person after him, his name is Ibn Sina. Ibn Sina lived from 980 to 1037. Interestingly, and which is one of the forgotten aspects of Ibn Sina, Ibn Sina severely critiqued the atheism of Al-Razi. Although today people lump them together, but Ibn Sina was not an atheist, far from it. He 100% believed in Allah's fault Allah. And there may have been some other problems, right? But he was definitely a theist. He did not deny the existence of God. And in some of his writings, he extensively critiques Ibn Sina. And another early philosopher, and another philosopher, Al-Biruni, also critiques uh, Al-Razi. Sorry, Ibn Sina critiques Al-Razi, and Al-Biruni also critiques Al-Razi. Now, some say Ibn Sina was Shi'i, some say he was Ismaili. Some minority opinion even suggests that he's Sunni. Allahu Alam. Imam Ghazali's concern with him is actually not these things, but what does Ibn Sina do? And this is very important for us to reflect. He makes the same mistake that certain people today make, that he thought that let me reconcile the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle, etc., with Ilm al-Kalam, 
and come up with some type of fusion so that people like such great thinkers like Muhammad ibn Zakariya Razi would never become atheists. And actually, this is another thing that we sort of forget about Ibn Sina, that on its surface, this intention is noble, that he actually was worried about atheism. Hence, he articulated very rigorously his philosophy. So he was trying to reconcile Neoplatonism and Aristotelianism with, you can say, Islam in the most simplest of way. And in fact, this is his real impact on St. Thomas or Thomas Aquinas. He also thought that he could try to reconcile rational thought with or Western Christian, the- or Christian theology. Claire, then there's another two people, Al-Farabi and Al-Kindi, but let me just fast forward, and then you have Imam al-Ghazali. So Imam al-Ghazali is living at a time when a lot of the learned people, intellectual people, educated people, whether they were educated in Deen or educated in science or astronomy or medicine, were increasingly inspired by Ibn Sina. First, there was this craze of being inspired by the first Arazi. Ibn Sina turned the direction away from atheism to a philosophical type of Islam. Then people were being extremely inspired by that. Then Allah Ta'ala raised up Imam Ghazali to turn the direction again back to a classical spiritual form of Islam. But Imam Ghazali is living in that time. He's constantly hearing about it. He reads the works of Ibn Sina. He reads and engages Arazi. He reads the work of the philosophers, as you're going to see shortly how he describes himself. Then another person, just to show you another few names afterwards, there's another Arazi, Fakhruddin Arazi. Fakhruddin Arazi, who is 1149 to 1209. He is in the line of Imam Ghazali as well. And there was a person called Ibn Rushd as well. Because that would get a bit more complicated. Right? But there are some other thinkers who come after Imam Ghazali who are also trying to find the right mix between different types of thoughts and different articulations of that thought. And then you would end this maybe with Atusi, who actually is, tries to critique Ghazali and uh, Fakhreddin Al-Razi. All right. I'm not going to go anymore into Imam Ghazali's life or his uh, ideas because I'd rather have Imam Ghazali explain it for himself in the text. Okay, so this work of his is titled Al-Mulkin Min al Some view it to be his very last work. Some have put Minhajul Abidin as after this. Some have put his letter Ya Ayuhal Walad as after this. But either way, this is one of the later, latter, final works of Imam Ghazali after his life. There's another title to this which is unclear whether it is Imam Ghazali after his own title or somebody has added the subtitle Wal Musilu Ila Zil Izzati Wal Jalal and that which is going to connect a person, the connector, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to that being of incredible honor and majesty, means Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There are quite a few, I had five translations of this, all of which are left behind in England, and I think there's a sixth one also. I'm not 100% comfortable with any one of those translations. And because I didn't have the books, I managed to have soft copies of three of them. And it was a bit difficult to select which one to put up for you. Khair, 
On a more personal note, this is one of the three books that changed my life when I was an undergraduate at the University of Chicago in 1992. And at that time in my life, when I was... 92 means I would have been 18. So at that time I happened to read uh, William Montgomery Watts' translation. So because I couldn't really decide between the three I had, I decided to just put up for you William Montgomery Watts' translation. So that is what is up on the projector. But from time to time I'm going to be changing uh, the translation or editing what is written. Okay? Alright. So Imam Alhamdulillah that all praise be to that being. يَفْتَتَهُ بِحَمْدِهِ كُلُّ رِسَالَةً With which begins, with whose praise begins every single risala, every single epistle or treatise, and mumakala and every speech or every treatise. وَصَلَاتُ عَلَى مُحَمَّدِ الْمُصْطَفَى and may Allah Taala's blessings and salutations be on Sayyidina Rasulullah Al-Mustafa, the select, elect, choice, chosen one, Sahib al-Nabuwa wa the one who is bestowed and endowed with prophethood and messengerhood, wa alihi, and all of those who are of his spiritual brethren, wa ashabihi, and all of his uh, companions, al-hadina min al all of whom were guides to guide humanity away from being astray. So Sayyidina Rasulullah his Ahl and his Al and his Ashab, all are guides to humanity to guide them away from what is astray and bring them into the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then you will see that actually that this Risala, like many of Imam Ghazanta's writings, are things that he wrote in response to a question. This is what in our name we call Barakatus Sa'il. That sometimes the questioner has so much ikhlas and sincerity that he elicits a whole Risala from the person he's asking. Imam Zai was much better than us that you ask us a question in an email and we don't even respond. <laughs> but Imam Zai, mashallah, when he is asked a question, he writes a whole Risala but must be some sincerity in the heart of the seeker. So he says that indeed you asked me, O oh my brother in deen, ayyuhal akh fid deen. This is also Imam Uzzah's humility. He's not saying, O oh my student, O oh my lowly follower, O oh my fan. He says, O oh my brother in the deen. Right? So, and this is also Imam Uzzah's opening up and going to share with him a very personal experience. So what does the person ask? That ask that you should show to me ghayatul ulumi wa asraraha that you should show me the objectives of the ulum which are knowledges I wouldn't call sciences disciplines of learning wa asraruha and its inner nature and its innermost secrets. Then you have also asked me to explain the different um let me let me not try to translate for you live. Let me just stick with your translation. You have begged me to relate to you the difficulties I encountered in my attempts to extricate the truth from the confusion of contending sects and to distinguish the different ways and methods and the venture I made in climbing from the plane of naive and second-hand belief that lead to the peak of direct vision. Alright, so this I need to explain a little bit over here. Alright? Okay. 
The word that is used here is taqlid, and the Arabic word used when he's translated as vision is actually istifsar. Istifsar is talibit tafsir. Istifsar means seeking clarity and seeking depth for oneself. Here the word taqlid has nothing to do with fiqh. It's not what Allah is talking about. He's talking about taqlid and aqidah. And what he's talking about, uh, let me just give you a summary of what he's going to do. What happens is when he starts teaching, he all of a sudden gets this crisis that he feels that he's not able to rely on the knowledge that he has previously believed in. First, he even feels that he cannot rely on even his own sense perception. He starts questioning the knowledge and information and data that he acquires through his sight or his hearing or his smelling or his touch. Then he starts questioning his basic belief in Allah SWT because he feels that the belief that he had is something that he just inherited, something that he was just following because he was born into it. So this is the quote-unquote crisis of faith that he has. One that he doubts even his ability to know. Then second, he doubts the knowability of Allah SWT and then when you add those two things up, then he ends up in this crisis of faith that do I really know that Allah Taala exists? This is the crisis that he's going to go through. Now, amazingly, he doesn't go through this crisis while being a love student. <laughs> he goes through this crisis while being one of the most renowned ulama of his time. He goes through this crisis when being maybe the most famous scholar of his time. Allah Akbar. He doesn't go through this crisis as someone who hardly knows anything about Islam. He goes through this crisis when he has deep ilm of tafsir and Quran, deep ilm of hadith and sunnah, deep ilm of sharia. He doesn't go through this crisis living in New York or Los Angeles. He goes through this crisis living in Baghdad, the cradle of Islamic civilization at that time, a city of ulama and awliya. He doesn't go through this crisis having not met real practicing Muslims and only knowing seen in Islam. He goes through this crisis having seen real mu'mineen, real muslimin, living mu'mineen. Allah Akbar. So one cannot overstate the profound magnitude of this crisis. And then what's going to happen is that he keeps teaching and he's going to share with you that he pretends. He goes through the motions of praying and teaching and lecturing even though inside he's wondering and questioning. Allah Akbar. Then what's going to happen is he's going to make a decision that I can't continue like this. This is unsustainable. So what do I have to do? I have to go experiment. I have to go experience. That there are certain people out there who claim that they know with truth and certainty Allah SWT. So I'm going to go and interact with those claimants and I'm going to investigate their claims and I'm going to see if any of their methods of knowing the truth will work for me, because right now I'm in a crisis situation. So he goes through four different categories of seekers of truth who were alive, who were predominant at his time. And one by one he's going to share with us how he interacted with that thought and what his views and experiences were. And he's also going to share with us how successful he views any one of those poor paths to bring a person to this truth and certain conviction in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
Alright. So, I suppose. Is this the one that's connected? Yours is connected. Okay. So this is what he's saying, that you want me to end. This is the journey of his life, and people came to know about it when he returned from that journey, when he resumed his teaching. So then one student asked him this question, that what happened to you? This was the, one of the most famous stories of that time, that Imam Uzai left the Madrasa Nizami in Baghdad, and he disappeared for one and a half years. Then he came back to Baghdad, and he refused to teach and interact with people. Then all of a sudden he's come out of that, and after ten years he's resuming teaching in Nishapur, and then students were learning from him, and they all knew this, and I'm sure all of them were curious, and Allah Ta'ala reward this one fellow, right, who had not just the curiosity, but the courage to ask Imam Ghazali, what exactly happened? So he asked him this question, that I want you to share with me all of these things. And the suggestion is, that the way he phrases the question, is that Imam Ghazali would maybe share some nuggets of his journey, and experience from time to time in his teaching. So the student wanted to know the whole story. The student wanted to know the whole story. So getting back to here then, so you want me to describe, firstly, what profit I derive, what benefit I derive from ilmul kalam. Secondly, what I disapprove of in the methods of the group of ta'lim, these were the Ismailis of that time. He's going to call them the people of ta'lim now, later he's going to call them the Batiniya later. These were the Ismailis of that time. Third, what I rejected of the methods of philosophy. And fourth, what I approved in the way of tasawwuf. You would also want to know, you also want to know, what essential truths, primary truths, became clear to me in my manifold investigations into the doctrines held by men. Why I gave up teaching in Baghdad, although I had many students, and why I returned to it at Nisabur after a long interval. So I am proceeding to answer your question, your request, for I recognize that your desire is genuine. This is Barakat al says, the only reason I'm because you have ikhlas. You are mukhlas. Because you are mukhlas and you have ikhlas, therefore I'm going to answer your question. But in this I seek the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I place my tawakkul, my trust and dependence on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I seek refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Means that he's doing it in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What he's really saying here is, and I ask Allah ta'ala to give me ikhlas in responding to you. This is the barakah of Kunum al-Sandikin. You see, the relationship between the student and Imam Ghazali, they have no ethnic tie, linguistic tie, family tie, right? There is a relationship of ikhlas. He wants to learn and he wants to share. So he's also, Imam Ghazali's humility, that he's making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that may Allah ta'ala also give me ikhlas when I answer in my efforts and attempts to answer your questions. Alright. Then he says that you must know, may Allah ta'ala subhanahu wa ta'ala perfect you in the right path and soften your heart to receive the truth. So first answers here, he makes dua for the person. First thing he does is make dua for the questioner. Then he says that the different religious observances and religious communities of the human race, and likewise the different theological systems of the religious leaders with all the multiplicity of sects and variety of practices, constitute ocean depths in which the majority drown and only a minority reach safety. Now this is something 
This is 900 years ago Imam was writing this. 902 years ago. And this is something that people ask today. That there's so many different views out there, so many movements, so many ideas, so many ideologies. What am I supposed to do? So this isn't something new. This is something that the ulama have been aware of and have addressed and even experienced and gone through this process themselves. And I would say that what Imam Ghazali said then is still true today. That those who try to investigate this, the majority of them will drown. Only a minority will be able to navigate these murky waters. Then, he said that each separate group thinks that it alone is saved. And then he quotes, this is from Quran al-Kanim, and each party is rejoicing in what they have. And he says, this is what was foretold by the greatest of the prophets, Sayyidina Rasulullah was as-sadiq al-ameen, who is the truthful one and the trustworthy one, he said, that my community will be split up into 73 sects, and but one of them will be saved. And what Sayyidina Rasulullah foretold has indeed come about. Alright. This is another famous question we always used to get. That the Prophet said there would be these 70 odd or sometimes 72 or sometimes 73 sects and only one of them would be saved. In another work, Imam al when we taught this whole course, he has another work of his called Faisal Tafrika. And in that he mentions another hadith which we traced it and it actually is an authentic hadith which I had never myself known until I read that work of Imam Ghazali's that Sayyidina Sulaiman has also said that my community will split up into multiple sects. All of them will be saved but one. And this is that only one will be saved. And the way Imam Ghazali joined between those two hadith in that work was that on the, there are two types of differences. One are differences of creed and theology which are so critical that it puts a person either inside or outside the imam. Then within the Ahna Imam, there are differences of methodology. And those differences don't put a person outside. They all remain inside. So, and I was amazed at how few people know, even myself, I didn't have come across that hadith until that text. How few people know that hadith. And how everybody knows this one. But certainly, there is a notion here that Sayyidina is very much trying to show is that there is a lot of ways to go straight. There's a lot of the lama. And then somebody who is confronting and who is sincere seeker, who knows the hadith, would naturally be very hesitant, would be very cautious, would be very scared. And today's rationalistic mind would think that I have one out of 73 chance of getting it right. I have one 73rd chance in my investigation. Hmm? So, what does Imam Ghazali say then? So, from my early youth, since I attained the age of puberty before I was 20, and this is also showing you that this is the understanding of youth in Islam. That youth ends before you're 20. Because when you're 20, you're considered an adult. 100% completely mature adult. Until the present time when I'm over 50. So this is an ashara, by the way, that those who are in Ghazali studies suggested this one of his last works. Because I told you he passed away when he was 53 years old. So one of his last and final works. It says that I have ever, means he's still doing it. I have ever recklessly launched out into the midst of these ocean depths. I have ever bravely embarked on this open sea, throwing aside all caution. I have poked into every dark recess. I have made an assault on every problem. I have plunged into every abyss. I have scrutinized the creed of every sect. I have tried to lay bare the inmost doctrines of every community. 
All this have I done that I might distinguish between true and false, between what is soundly transmitted from tradition and as opposed to heretical innovation. Allahu Akbar. So this was Imam Ghazali, but today you would call his intellectual curiosity, or even you could say his intellectual honesty. He's sharing this. Whenever I meet one of the Bataniya, so this is the same that what I told the people of Ta'lim, the Ismailis, I like to study his creed. Whenever I meet one of the Zafiriya, this was another movement at that time, that they were literalists, they kept everything at its surface face value meaning. So for example, if Allah Subhanahu uses the word in Quran, Yadullahi Foka Aidihim, that the hand of Allah Subhanahu is over their hand, the most extreme, and not all of them were like this, but the most extreme position was that Allah Ta'ala literally has a hand, and that hand is a part of a body, and Allah Subhanahu has a body. So here, Srimozai says that when I would meet one of the Zahiriya, I would want to know the essentials of his belief. If it is a philosopher, I try to become acquainted with the essence of his philosophy. If a mutakallim, which has been translated as classic theologian, a person is an ilmul kalam, I busy myself in examining his theological reasoning. If a mutasawwif, that's the Arabic mutasawwif, a person of tasawwuf, I yearn to fathom the secret of his tasawwuf. You may see, you can tell here I don't like the English word Sufi and I don't like the English word mysticism. We prefer to stick to the Arabic. I want to know what is behind their tasawwuf. If a muta'abbid means a person who is really just doing ibadah all the time. Sometimes this was called zuhud. Sometimes this was also taken to extreme. And even though Sayyidina Islam, there is no monasticism in Islam. There were some individuals historically who basically were living a monastic type life and they were known as muta'abbid. I investigate the basis of these intense practices of ibadah. If one of the zanadak or mu'attila, I look beneath the surface to discover the reasons for his bold adoption of such a creed. Here, you don't need to know, you can get an idea here that Imam Ghazali did indeed probably investigate 73. <laughs> He's giving you some names. Yeah. Whose computer is this? I want to press the down arrow. No, no, look, and this, this keeps coming up. No. Hmm? Yeah, good. Oh, the take on just a All right. To thirst after a comprehension of things as they really are was my habit, and a custom from a very early age. It was instinctive with me, a part of my Allah Ta'ala given nature, a matter of my taba, my temperament, and not of my choice or contriving. So Imam said, is, why is he saying this? Imam Zai is making this point by saying that I'm going to share with you my journey. It's descriptive, it's not prescriptive. I'm not prescribing and telling that you should do these things. That's what he's saying. He's saying, this is the way I am. I'm describing how I was that I used to go into every single detail. I'm not prescribing it that somebody should do that. That's what Imam Zai is saying here. Consequently, as I drew near the age of adolescence, the bonds of mere authority to ceased to hold me, and inherited beliefs lost their grip upon me. For I saw another classic question that the university students that I saw that Christian youths always grew up to be Christians, Jewish used to be Jews, and Muslim used to be Muslims. 
And yes, this was the nature of Iraq and Iran at that time, that they were significant non-Muslim minorities living in those areas completely peacefully as well. And Imam Ghazali clearly was interacting with them and asking them as well about their behavior. And I'd also heard, he says, I heard as well, the hadith of Sayyidina Rasulullah according to which he said, that everyone is born on a fitra, fitra to salim, a sound fitra, but it is his parents who make him a Jew or a Christian or a Magian. My inmost being was moved to discover what this fitra really was. He said, okay, I'll take some guidance from that hadith, that there is something called fitra, some internal, inherent, intrinsic humanity. So I wanted to discover that inside myself. And what the beliefs and what, what the fitra really was and what the beliefs derived from the authority of parents and teachers really were. He wants to see what is it that is inherent and what is it that is acquired. So I can separate those two things out. The attempt to distinguish between these authority-based, that's what he means by what was acquired opinions, and their principles developed the mind. For in distinguishing the true in them from the false differences appeared. So when he saw what was true and was false, he began to see differences in the different methodologies and the different methods and different sects and different religions. So I therefore said within myself, to begin with, what I am looking for is knowledge of what things really are. So I must undoubtedly try to find what knowledge itself really is. Because I'm trying to know. So then he asked himself the question, well, what does it mean to know? What is knowledge? How do I know the knowables? Is something knowable? Am I able to know it? How will I know the knowable? This is what he's asking. This is what today in fancy English they would call epistemology. Right? It simply means that, that how do you know what is knowable and how do you know that knowable? All right? There's an expert here. It was plain to me that sure and certain knowledge, this is ilmul yakin, ilmul zururi, ilmul qati, sure, certain, absolute, unequivocal, irrefutable knowledge, is that knowledge in which the object is disclosed in such a fashion that no doubt remains along with it, that no possibility of error accompanies it, no possibility of illusion accompanies it, and that the mind cannot even entertain the possibility of error or illusion. So he's defining certainty now. He's defining what certain knowledge will be. And this is what he wants. I want to get such a knowledge that there's no doubt, no skepticism, no possibility of doubt, no hypothetical possibility of doubt. Something that is absolutely sure. Second, he says, certain knowledge must also be infallible. No scope or possibility for error. And this infallibility or security from error is such that no attempt to show the falsity of knowledge can occasion doubt or denial. So if I know something with certainty and somebody else tries to refute it, disprove it, if I really know it with certainty, all of their refutations and proofs won't make me budge at all. I will not even doubt what I know, and I can never deny what I know. That's how he's defining to know something with certainty. So in simpler English, to know something with certainty means that every refutation, every counter-argument that may come to you doesn't even put the slightest doubt in that thing which you know. That means you know it with certainty. So I think he has come up with an extremely high benchmark for what is certain, right? The way he's describing certainty is extremely rigorous and maybe, okay, 
Alright. Even though the attempt is made by someone who turns stones into gold or a rod into serpent. Imam Hazar is not saying that people can turn stones into gold necessarily. But he's trying to say that I should be so certain about it that even if an alchemy or miracle worker was to come and do something like that and say, look, so this is proof that I know what you're saying is wrong. He says, no, I'm still 100% sure of what I know. You may be able to turn stones into gold. Allah, how you do that? <laughs> but your ability to do that still does, and does not give any credence to your refutation of what I know to be true. What I know to be true is still true. So if you can think as an example, and we'll give examples like that later. So the famous example we give in English normally is that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Now if somebody came to you right now and, I don't know, waved their hand and made the chair go up and fly across the room, you might be amazed. But you wouldn't be so amazed that then if he tells you that 2 plus 2 equals 5, you'll say, no, 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 2 plus 2 equals 4. <laughs> in fact, the only thing you'll be amazed at is that somebody who can pick up a chair and levitate it and move it, <laughs> that's what will amaze you, if anything. It won't amaze you into thinking that 2 plus 2 equals 5. Right? That's what he's saying. Right? And ter- changes the rod into a serpent, so obviously Sayyidina Musa salam, did this, but this is not what Imam Ghazali is saying, that if a Nabi comes to me and says something, I won't believe it. He's just saying that any miracle... A miracle worker, if they were to perform a miracle in front of me, even that won't shake me from my knowledge. That is what I was culture. And I witness, I see it myself firsthand, even that much. And no doubts about what I know would be raised in me because of any of this. The only result is that I wonder precisely how... He, the only thing that would happen to me is I would wonder how did he turn, change the stones and rock into gold. Of doubt about my knowledge, there is no trace. There will be no even trace effect on my knowledge that I will have even the slightest of doubt. So after these reflections, I knew that whatever I do not know in this fashion as I've described above, and with this mode of certainty, is not reliable. If there's anything that I know that I can't say about, I can't say about it, all these things, then that's not reliable. It's not reliable. It's not infallible knowledge. It's fallible. And knowledge that is not infallible and is not certain knowledge. So now he has set a very difficult task for himself. Now he's not setting this for himself in his 50s. He's recalling to the person what standard he set for himself as he embarked on his journey to know. So now when he, after he defines and decides that this is the definition of knowledge, then he says, Thereupon I investigated the various kinds of knowledge I already had, Imam Uzzai says at that time, and I found myself destitute of all knowledge with this characteristic of infallibility. In other words, he says that I looked inside myself, what are all the things that I, Al-Ghazali, think I know at this time? And he says, well, none of them actually meet that criteria I just set up, except two things. None of them can I say that I have certain knowledge except two things. What is that except in the case of number one, sense perception? So if I see something is white, I'm certain it's white. If I see this to be a table, I'm certain it's a table. My senses, if I hear a clapping sound, I know that was a clapping sound. And number two, necessary truths. Sometimes people may call this axioms, like the two plus two equals four, put it that way. That's a good example of this, necessary truth. 
Other than that, there's nothing I know with certainty. Most important, what's missing from this list, Iman. That's the key thing. You can see what's going to happen to him. He sets up certainty of knowledge with this definition. He looks inside himself. The only thing I'm sure about is what I see. This is way before people even come up with the word in English empiricism. The English word empiricism doesn't exist in the English language at this point. Right? But actually, Imam is saying something what today philosophers would say empirical. means you only know for sure what you can see through your sense, what is demonstrated in front of you, which you can perceive. So Imam Ghazali actually saying the same thing? Okay, so now, then he says, now that despair has come over me. Why despair? Despair because Iman's not making the list. <laughs> My Iman and Allah is not making the list. So yes, because he was a sincere person, and obviously somebody who has belief, and then all of a sudden sets up a definition for which they no longer have certain belief, they're going to start panicking. And that's a good thing. That's also sincerity. So he says that despair came over me. That there is no point in taking problems except in the sphere of what is self-evident. Namely, necessary truths and the affirmation of the senses. Taking problems, it means here, actually, this is, again, you can, you can see some problem, problems in the understanding of the English. It means there's no point in me trying to investigate any problem, taking up an issue. Because I'll never be able to resolve it to the level of certainty. The only issue I should investigate is what is within the reach of my sense perception or which is in the reach of necessary truths. I can't go, there's only two tools I have. So I shouldn't take up any issue which I cannot access with, the method, with these two tools. I must first bring these to be judged in order that I may be certain on this matter. So I have to first bring these two tools to bear in order that I may be certain on any particular issue that I'm looking at. Then, he asks himself another question. Right? That these two tools, am I even certain about them? So is my reliance on sense perception, right, sight, smell, touch, hearing, and taste, and my trust in the soundness of necessary truths, 2 plus 2 equals 4, etc., of the same kind as my previous trust in the beliefs I had merely taken over from others? Now, do I really know that what I see is certainly what's there? Maybe I should open this up for investigation and questioning also. Do I really know what the 2 plus 2 equals 4? That's just something my math teacher told me. That's also something I've accepted on authority. Accepted on authority of elders and teachers and transmitters. So maybe I should question that as well. And is the trust most men have in the results of thinking? Or is it a justified trust? Or can I really justifiably trust these two tools that is in no danger of being betrayed or destroyed? So then I said that I proceeded therefore, Imam Zali says that I proceeded therefore with extreme earnestness. Means this, I made this the passion and mission of my time to reflect on sense perception and on necessary truths. So basically what now Imam Zali feels is the need to question the tools of knowledge. The need to question the tools. First he questions what knowledge itself is. Now he's, then he questions how do you know knowledge now he's questioning that can the tools of knowing ever really know anything. Right? Okay. Where did we go? Right. And to see whether I can make myself doubt them. So let me see if I question myself. Because remember what he said? 
definite uncertainty, no matter what questions are raised, refutations are raised, you won't have any doubt. So let me raise questions against sense perception and see if any doubt arises. If after raising questions on my sense perception, some doubt arises, means I don't really know, I can't trust my sense perception at the level of certainty. The outcome of this protracted effort to induce doubt was that I could no longer trust sense perception either. When I started questioning it, yes, I started to have doubts. How? Doubt began to spread here and say, from where does the reliance on your five senses come? Well, the most powerful senses that have sight. This is also something that everyone today in media and everyone will tell you. It's your vision is the most powerful of your senses. So, when it looks at the shadow, and there are examples of this, it looks at the shadow, it sees the shadow standing still. And this, your vision will tell you that there's no motion. But in reality, in terms of astronomy, the sun is, the earth is always moving. And therefore, in relation to the earth and sun, this relationship is always moving. So the shadow is always moving. Unless, I suppose, in theory, when it's, the sun is at its zenith, there will be one second where the shadow doesn't move. Right? And depending on the curvature of earth and latitude and longitude, there's a certain number of minutes. That's the time of Zawah, which you don't pray. That the shadow comes, 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 comes down and then it starts extending on this side, but that's 5, 7, 10 minutes, it remains stationary. But otherwise, normally, and just like 10 a.m., when you look at the shadow, you'll think that the shadow isn't moving, isn't extending. Your sight will tell you that. The sight will give you data that your brain interprets that it's stationary, but in reality, astronomy will teach you that it's actually moving. So he starts questioning, that is my sight really reliable? Is my vision really reliable? So it looks at the shadow, it sees it standing still and therefore makes the judgment that there is no motion. But by experience and observation after an hour, it knows that the shadow was in fact moving, and moreover that is moving not by fits and starts, but gradually, steadily, by infinitely small distances, in such a way that it is never in a state of rest. It's such a beautiful mathematical explanation. By infinitely small distances, that's what later on, well, I don't know when calculus was discovered, but probably all they didn't know calculus, that's what the limit of x as it approaches 5 Technically, there are infinitely small steps it takes to reach 5. But because math can't handle that, it says just treat x as 5. <laughs> that's actually what calculus teaches you. <laughs> that you can't handle the infinite. So just come back to the finite. Because the uckle cannot, if you uckle cannot even understand and fathom the infinite divisions that you can make between 4 and 5, then obviously how can you expect the uckle alone without wahi to understand the infinite nature of akhana? Right? Fair. I'm here to teach you the text. <laughs> right? Okay. So, here another example Imamazala gives that when it looks at heavenly bodies, heavenly bodies means those astronomical objects that are in the skies. Right? So, for example, you see the moon. So, that's right. When you look in the moon, you think it's the size of a quarter. Right? You, your eye cannot tell you how big the moon is. If geometrical computations or astronomical cal- whatever computations show that it is greater than the Earth and sorry the sun he's talking about, so when you look at the sun in the sky, the sun looks very small, but actually the sun is much larger than the Earth in size. But your eyes don't give you that message, right? Similarly with the stars, one can give more examples. Your eye will tell you the star is there. Astronomical reality: the star may have died many years ago, and you're just seeing light that it sent out millions of years ago, it's actually no longer there. Or you see the star the size of a dot, 
actually that star is even a million times bigger than the sun that you see, let alone that it's the size of a dawn. Alright, so in this and similar cases of sense perception, the sense as judge forms its own judgments, but another judge, the uckle, shows the sense to be wrong in such a way that the charge of accusation of being wrong cannot be refuted. means the uckle says that the sun isn't this size. The uckle says the star isn't that small. The uckle will tell you the shadow is moving. So now he moves to another source of knowledge, another tool, which is the uckle, rational intellect. Because if the rational intellect can prove the sense perception to be wrong, but now let me question the rational intellect, because the rational intellect ever be wrong. So he's going to investigate that. So to this I said that my reliance on sense perception has also been destroyed. Perhaps then only those truths which are first principles or derived from first principles have to be relied on, such as the assertion that ten is more than three, that the same thing cannot but be both affirmed and denied at one time, that one thing is not both generated in time and eternal, nor both existent and non-existent, nor both necessary and impossible. This is a very particular thing that you're thinking about in Arabic, but just to make it a bit easy, here ten is more than three. Everybody can understand that, right? That same thing cannot be both affirmed and denied. So if I say it's raining outside, you cannot affirm that yes, it is raining, and also deny and say no, it's not raining. You can't say that at the same time, right? Then, one thing is not both generated in time and eternal. So either this world didn't exist, so let's use one version, the world didn't exist and the Big Bang brought into existence, or you say no, the world has always been around. You can't say both. Either we were born, or we've always been around. You can't say, no, you were born on this day. No, actually, no, you have always existed. You can't say both, right? Or that something is both existent and not, so something is mojud and ghair mojud, right? So this mouse exists, and it also doesn't exist, right? You have to only, you have to go to some really, really wild philosophers who can tell you that. There are some people in California who can argue this to you, that the mouse exists and it doesn't exist. <laughs> But that's a very strange <laughs> understanding of life, right? Okay. And nor both necessary and impossible, right? Okay, anyway, so I think you've understood. So all of this was an example of what he was calling the intellectual truths. That, chalo, itna mujhe patai. I can no longer rely that what I see is really there. But at least now I know. The only thing that's left to me is these types of truths. That's the only thing I know with certainty. So then sense perception replied, not literally, but he's writing it as a story. He's saying, okay, then my sight and my hearing and my smell said to me, that, okay, you're not trusting us, right? Because you say sometimes we may be wrong. And now you're taking this big thing, uckle, and you're so happy with the uckle, that the uckle can never be wrong. So let's just show you how your uncle can be wrong also. So sense perception said, did you not expect that your reliance on intellectual truths, self-evident truths, will fare like your reliance on sense perception? The same thing is going to happen. You used to trust in me, so vision is saying. Then along came the uncle, and the uncle proved me wrong. That the uncle proved that the sun really isn't that size that it seems. Okay. If it were not for the uncle, you would have continued to view whatever I said is true. You would have thought that the shadow isn't moving if you never knew astronomy and you didn't know that actually the earth is moving. You would have thought that the shadow, like some people still think that the earth doesn't move. Because they say, 
Right? Is it moving? I had a teacher from the Madasa in Jama Shafir who, because he spent years, he's never left the Madasa compound. So it's also a type of empiricism, right? So we were doing this text, Mirzi. And in that, it's actually because it was old philosophy. It says that the earth is not moving, it's stationary. And gives many refutations of the view that the earth is moving. And so the students, they were having fun with me. So they knew that I was from abroad. So this Ustaji, ye harkat karti. He thinks the earth is moving. So the teacher looked at me. Harkat And he went like this. <laughs> he was saying because his vision was showing him that the earth was moving at the speed that science tells you on this axis unless you have the ugly understanding of whatever the centrifugal forces of gravity you would think that things would be flying off earth right the chair would be moving and this would be moving so it means that if you didn't have that particular ugly understanding then you would trust your vision so that's what the vision is saying alright fair Allah subhanahu wa bless that Allah, that maybe he doesn't know that the earth is moving. And you may think that you may know in one aspect of your life you have a juicy knowledge more than him. That you happen to know that planet earth is a sphere and it rotates on its axis and then the whole earth is actually orbiting around the sun. But in every other sense of the world that Allah knows more than you. And the knowledge that he has about Allah subhanahu wa he knows more about Allah Ta'ala's mercy moving into the hearts. And we may know more about this piece of mud rotating around its axis. <laughs> this is the difference. This is the choice we've made in our life. Right? So here, the, so the vision said that the akul came along and proved me wrong. So if it was not for the akul, you would have continued to regard me as true. Perhaps behind akul there is another judge. That if that judge were to show themselves, it would show the falsity, the falsehood of the akal, the fallibility, the possibility of error in the akal, in his judging. Just like when the akal showed up, it showed how I was wrong, vision, sense of perception, there may be something else that if it shows up, you, it will be able to tell you that the akal is wrong. So he calls this the supra-rational, that would be a better term for the supra-rational faculty. That there is a faculty beyond rationality. So there was a faculty beyond sense perception called rationality that showed that sense perception could be wrong. What if there is a faculty beyond rationality that could show that rationality is wrong? So, Imam, and here actually this was a mistake, and that is here, nafs doesn't always mean ego. Sometimes nafs is myself. So it says, me, myself, I hesitated a bit about the reply to that. So then the vision heightened the difficulty by referring to dreams. So it gives this example of a transrational, super-rational experience a person has. So do you not see that how, when you are asleep, your mind, I'm adding some words here, your mind believes things. Even modern neuroscience will say your brain functions. In fact, that's how they can tell you're dreaming. They put these things on your head and they'll say your brain was functioning in a certain way. So that's your uncle. So it's not that your brain wasn't functioning. Your brain was functioning when you're dreaming. At that time, in your dream, your uncle, your mind was believing things and imagining circumstances, holding things to be stable and enduring. So in your dream, you were dreaming, the mashallah, you were in Medina Manora. And in the dream, your mind fully thought that you were in Medina Manora. Whereas actually you were 
in your home in Karachi, <laughs> right? It's your mind that thought in the dreaming that you were Medina Menorah, alright? So, when you were asleep, you believe things and imagine circumstances of your table and dream. And so long, so long as you are in that dreamlike state, you have no doubt about it whatsoever. In the dream, the Meshal Mashal, some of you today have the complicated dreams that I was dreaming. In the dream, I realized I was dreaming. Then in the dream, I realized that I realized that I was dreaming. I said, Bas Baskar. I cannot help you with that one. <laughs> right? But normally when people dream, normally when they dream, they don't. They actually, especially when you have a really vivid dream, sometimes even when you come out of the dream, you still believe what you were dreaming. It takes you some time to come out of that. Right? So, you had no doubts about it. But is it not the case that when you woke up, you knew that everything that your mind held to be true, I'm teaching it to you, not to train, that your mind held to be true in the dream, when you wake up, you realize that actually all of that was unfounded and ineffectual, was untrue. So another judge in, comes and tells you that what your mind believed with certainty, what your mind held to be true, actually was something that was untrue. So why then are you confident in all your waking beliefs, whether they're from the sense perception or from intellect? How, why are you confident that they're genuine? What does it mean that you are confident when dreaming, that what your mind believed to be true in a dream was true, but when you woke up you knew it was no longer true? So then why are you confident that when you're awake, what your mind thinks to be true is really true? Maybe you will wake up from this wakefulness, Maybe one day you will see something beyond this life. And when you wake up from this wakefulness, you will realize that many of the things that you thought to be true in the wakeful state were untrue. Can you deny the existence of such a thing? Now remember what's happening here. Remember Imam Ghazali said that I will only view to be true that thing which can withstand all doubts. So the sense perception is putting doubts in the akal. Using the example of the dream that maybe this whole life is a dreamlike state and maybe we will wake up on the day of judgment and realize that many of the things our mind thought was true in this world aren't true. Can that not be a possibility? That's all the sense perception is saying. And if Imam Zai responds to, well, yes, that is a possibility, then once it's a possibility, means you don't have certainty in the akal either because certainty in akal meant, as Ghazali himself defined certainty, is that you can never entertain the possibility that your akal is not true. But now, by this analogy of dream, Al-Ghazali is going to have to not entertain the possibility that yes, maybe there is yet another state of being which will make me realize that my merely rational state of being was not true. All right. So what your mind thinks is true is true in respect of your present state. But is it possible that a state will come upon you, that extra state, that this, that state in relation to your waking consciousness is the same relation to the waking state to your dream? Same thing he's saying that we explained, right? When you have entered into this state, this transrational, super-rational state, then you will be certain that all the suppositions of your intellect are empty imaginings. And it may be that that state is what the people of the soul claim is their special state. 
Now, let me explain it a bit now, but it's going to come later. That when they reach this level of fana and zikr and istighraq and istizar, when they go so deep into the state of zikr of Allah, which is not something to do with the aql, which is something to do with their kalb. So there were the five senses, then there was the aql, and now we're bringing yet another faculty of perception, which is called the kalb. So when they enter into the state of their kalb, in that state then they realize that what their uncle thought was wrong. But until they enter into that state, they will never know. Just like the person who is dreaming, it's when they wake up they will realize that what they, what they held to be true in the dream was wrong. But they will never be able to realize that until they wake up. So the only way to know whether what I feel to be true in my current state is really true is only going to be ascertained when I enter the next state. So is it possible, vision is saying, that just like after your state of vision, there was a state of ugly analysis, is it possible after the state of ugly analysis, there's a state of kalbi feeling? And it's only when you enter the state of the kalbi feeling that you'll know that your ugly analysis state was wrong. And so that's a possibility, because if you demonstrated its reality in the dream and awake analogy, then it means it's a possibility in the akal kalb analogy. And when it's a possibility, now the akal is no longer infallible, the way Imam Ghazali defined infallibility. I know it's a little bit difficult, that's why I'm repeating it in different ways and reading it, and as long as you get some idea, right, uh, that's sufficient for now. Okay? Alright. So, and... Not only is that a possibility, but there is actually a group of people who are laying claim to the state. There are a group of people who are saying that when I do zikr of Allah Spanta in my kalb, I get a feeling of kurb, whereas my akal will tell me Allah Ta'ala is baid. Your akal will tell you that you are on earth and you are a lowly mortal creature and Allah Spanta is a transcendental being. Hmm? That's the way you was. In Arabic, your akal will tell you that. Right? But when the person enters into the state of the kalb, in their heart felt zikr, they will feel that Allah tells kareeb. As he himself has said in Quran, فَإِنِّي kareeb. What can perceive that kurb? Your eyes cannot perceive the closeness of Allah Spanta. Sense perception can't do that. Your uncle cannot perceive the closeness of Allah Spanta. Rational intellect can't do that. There's another state, the heart, kalb, that can perceive the kurb of Allah Spanta. And what's going to happen here, I'm just going to show you what's going to happen. The existence in Allah Spanta can no, be known through certainty through the faculty of heart perception, which is called kalb. It cannot be known through certainty for Imam Ghazali's understanding from sense perception, nor from akal perception. Okay? Okay, this SC means that the translator has given his own words here. This is not actually, uh, this is interpolation, this is the translator inserting words. It may, be that, it may be that that state, which is a state that lies beyond the state of akal, is what the people of Tasawwuf claim as their hal, 
we, Imam Uzzah is not saying anything about union or ecstasy. This is this person interpreting the word hal as union or ecstasy because that's their non-Muslim understanding of Sufism. But Imam Uzzah wasn't talking about that. Imam Uzzah was talking about the sawuf. Hal means halatul qurb, halatul fana. This is the traditional Imam Uzzah was talking about. Not union or ecstasy. For what they consider in their ahwal, which occur when they have withdrawn into themselves, wadhkur rabbaka fi nafsik when they withdraw into themselves hmm, and are absent from their senses, tabattal, they are unaware of vision, their eyes are closed, their ears are closed, their tongue is not tasting, their tongue is, their nose is not smelling, they're not touching, they're unaware of their senses. They turn that one off. Then they also turn this second one off. They witness ahwal, which do not tally with the principles of the intellect. Right now, I gave you one, uh, one example was given here of the hal of the of the sawuf. Another example, perhaps that state is death itself. Maybe when a person dies, after they die, they enter into a state which is beyond the state of the akal, in which they can now critically assess what the akal thought to be true and realize it's untrue. Just like when the person wakes, they can critically assess what they thought was true in the dream but turns out to be untrue. So maybe there's a state after death. And so Sayyidina Rasulullah actually used the same analogy in Hadith that people are dreaming when they die they become awake. So this entire life is but a dream. What does that mean? That in life things that appear to be real they're actually unreal. So I'm talking about the mouse. That's not what Sayyidina Rasulullah talking about. It means that people think and perceive that the dunya is the be-all and end-all of existence. It's only when they die that they were fully realized that the akhirah is the be-all and end-all of existence. It's right now they're, they're, they don't feel that proclaim that everything in the dunya and all that it contains is but a trifle. That realization will come when they enter the next state of being, which is their death. After death. Alright? So perhaps life in this world is a dream by comparison with the world to come and when a person dies things come to appear differently to him from what he now beholds. Now this is something that only Allah knows best. Right? But when, now let's just pause from here and according to Islamic teachings when a person dies right? so your ruh and your body our ruh, my ruh and body will be laid in a grave. Right? Now there is some type of perception that remains. I'm not saying that the person in the grave knows what's going on on planet Earth. But it doesn't mean they're completely, entirely unaware. For example, Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu said that when a person dies, their grave will either be Rodatum min riyadun jannah, a garden from the gardens of Jannah, or it can also be a pit. You can say pit from the pits of the fires of hell. So obviously that's a sense that there's some shu'ur, there's some awareness, there's some perception, right, that the person in the grave is going to be able to feel and perceive that garden of garden of Jannah, or they're going to perceive and be aware of that fire from hell. So there's some type of shu'ur and perception that does take place after death. And at that time, in that state, in either of those two cases, let's take the most two extreme cases, that person will realize that the dunya was untrue. <laughs> Many things they thought were true in the dunya were untrue. If 
Mashallah, inshallah, they're in Rodatum in Rada Jannah. Then they realize that all of those things that we thought were pleasurable in this world, they were nothing. <laughs> they were nothing. And if they're Al Ayad, Al Aman, Al Hafiz, that if they're in the state where their grave is a fire from the fires of hell, they will also realize that all those things that they thought were worth it in the world were truly not worth it at all. <laughs> Those things that they thought were truly worth it in the world, they will realize they're absolutely untruly worth it at all. Right? So that much is there. That much is there. So this is another example that is given that after a person passes away. And this is why then Imam Zali mentions here this verse of Quran uh, that we have taken off thy covering and thy sight today is sharp. What does it mean that there is a veil in perception? that existed in this world. Illa mashallah somebody who has haqqul yaqeen in akhirah. Otherwise we can't really perceive akhirah when living in this world. But on that day of judgment it will be crystal clear that the akhirah is capital R real. The reality of akhirah will be clear on that day of judgment. Alright. One question, let me pause over here before we continue with the rest of Mamazai's story. One question sometimes students have on this text at this point is, hold on, Imam Ghazali was talking about doubt, skepticism, journey of faith. So how can he along the way be using Quran and Hadith when at this point he is not even certain that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exists, therefore he is not certain that the Quran is true, therefore he is not certain that the Prophet was a prophet, therefore he is not certain that the Hadith represents truth. Simple answer is at this stage, Imam Ghazali has become unsure of the certainty of everything, and he's stuck with all types of things at the realm of possibility. So what he's doing is considering different possibilities and seeing which possibility will lead to certainty. So just like he does make use of sense perception, which is at the level of possibility, perhaps that can lead me to certainty. He's making use of akal, that's at the level of possibility. Maybe that will lead me to certainty. Now another thing has been thrown out. Maybe there's a stage or a stage beyond akal. So he's going to accept that technically as possible because of dream analogy. Maybe I have to use that to get to certainty. So even now he's accepting the Quran at the level of possibility. So I can use that. Perhaps that will take me to certainty. And he's accepting hadith at the level of possibility. I can also use that and see if that takes me to certainty. And the crux is going to be, the method of Imam is going to be, is from all of these possibilities, the one that leads me to certainty means that that one is certainly true. So he's, it doesn't mean that he has to discard Quran and Hadith, or he can't use it as circular reasoning, he's trying to prove. He's not trying to prove Quran through Quran. He's exploring the concept of certainty through whatever he has in front of him, because now at this point, now everything that's in front of him, he views at the level of possibility, nothing is certainty. So if he can make use of his akal on this journey, right, so people say, no, he shouldn't use Quran, he should have just used his akal. But why? Because for Imam Ghazali's journey, at this stage, akal is not certain. Akal is just at the level of possibility. So why can't he use some verses of Quran and Hadith also in his journey towards certainty, even if he holds them right now at the level of possibility. Alright? So there's no circular reasoning, no door, no circular logic being taking place at this time. Alright? And you can see he's not made that argument. He's not using those verses or deeds to prove the existence of Allah SWT. That's not what he's doing here. Alright? Okay. And again, the existence of other positions, he's open. This is again his true intellectual honesty. He is open. That's why he views it as possibility. 
He is open that that is certainty. And he has to keep questioning, keep considering, keep pondering, keep reflecting. Alright. So, we're going to stop over here, because actually this is a good stop, although we're stopping five minutes ahead of schedule. But what that means is that people can go earlier to the masjid. There's no harm in that. And uh, the jama'ah in the masjid is at 1.30. And so 1.10 means you have more, even if you need to refresh your wudu, etc., etc., you have some time. And those of you who have wudu, you may even be able to sneak a cup of tea before you go to the masjid. I don't know. That's... <laughs> and give you time for that. Alright? So we're going to stop here because actually the next thing Imam is going to say something here which cannot be explained before the Hursana. Alright?